says, get that India, big boy. G'day and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet. Coming off the bye week, it's your boy John, also known as Forty Twenty. Joining me to get right back into everything that's happening in the NRL is Sixties. It was the bye week, mate, but we didn't have much time off. We had a couple of games out at Kellyville, but it is good to have you back to talk football and talk NRL. Mate, isn't winter here? I don't know about you, but I'm certainly feeling it out here. And after last Friday night up at Kellyville reporting on, watching and reporting on the New South Wales Cup game, I tell you what, I, I knew it was well and truly winter that night. Yes, it's uh, getting colder and colder. And um, I know I, I do some meal prep for my grandma and she's told me, John, no more salads. It's winter. I'm going to need some soups. So that's when you know it's starting to get to the heart of it. Uh, but yeah, we've got plenty to talk about. As we have found ourselves increasingly want to do on the preview podcast, mate, it's getting bigger and bigger because between the NRL and the Eels, there's just so much to talk about this uh, this year in particular. So let's uh, go back to last week. We'll kick off the show, which is usually just a preview podcast. We're going to rope in some review elements this week because you mentioned being out at Kellyville couple of games there on Friday and Saturday. We'll start on Saturday, so reverse chronological order with the Jersey flag. And it was actually nice weather out at Kellyville on that day. It was a little bit of a wind, not too cold. Eels looking to back up from that massive 40 to nil victory over the Canberra Raiders. Unfortunately, they fell short of the travelling Victoria Thunderbolts, 26 to 20. Bolts got out to a big lead early on on the back of some Parramatta mistakes. Eels started the second half red hot, got right back into it before another mistake or two sort of sealed the loss for him at home but for the Eels it was Matthew Komalafu who had a double uh, he was actually quite good in this game too Dantori Louie had a nice try down the left edge Charlie Guimer scoring late in the game to give the Eels a chance to bridge it to a draw but uh, the Thunderbolts holding on through a very torrid and frenetic final 10 minute period yeah and this will be uh, I have to imagine the boys and the coaches will be so frustrated themselves for the self-inflicted wounds in this game yeah it's Something that we've seen before with the flag, and uh, there was uh, not too many weeks ago, they allowed the bottom of the table Manly side to jump out to a 24-0 lead before coming back with four tries of their own, but unable to get any conversions that particular uh, afternoon and suffered a loss to Manly. And only... The week before, we'd seen them score a 40 to nil victory over the Raiders, showing what they're capable of. But it's it's probably symptomatic of the season that they've had, where lapses in concentration, errors, turn out to be costly. And if they can eliminate that, as, as pretty much they did in that game against the Raiders, then they're going to get some better results. Mm-hmm. But until they do that, then we're, we just don't know what to expect because... They've been so competitive against the top of the table teams, and yet can be just as prone to having able to bank the, bring the loss the, like that with the wins against the teams that they should be beating. And thankfully, the way the ladder is still structured, there is a good chance that uh, any sort of reasonable second half of the year form will carry them into the finals. But you, you can't keep letting those games slip away because that they will very quickly take away the finals from you if you keep doing it. So yeah, and, and not only that, it's ultimately, you're not going to gain much confidence, let alone cohesion, 
as a team. So even if you were to scrape into the finals, uh, unless you're addressing those sorts of issues, you're only really making up numbers. And I, I think the team has the capacity to do a little bit more than making up the numbers. But uh, until, as I said, until they address those issues, then that's going to be their lot for this season. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that this team has a really high ceiling. I mean, we've seen it in the game against Canberra. We've seen it in stretches against a lot of good teams. But like you said, they just need to be able to stretch those 10 to 20 minute passages of play to, it doesn't have to be the full 70 minutes of the game, but it has to be the majority of the game and you've got to be competitive. Yeah. And, and it's uh, not so much their defense, because I feel like their defense by and large has been okay. Uh, it's, but they've put themselves under undue defensive pressure by those mistakes and they're yeah. doing way more than their share or a lot of share of uh, red, like red zone or goal line defense because they keep turning the ball over in disadvantageous positions. Yeah, uh, yeah. This game, unfortunately, didn't uh, come without uh, injury added to the insult. Cruz Natili Schmidt picked up. I'm not sure if it was a knee or an ankle injury, mate, but uh, he went down and, and tried to battle through, but it looks like he succumbed to it this week, uh, not appearing in uh, the team list to take on the Bulldogs in round 14. Round 14, is it? Yeah, round 14. Uh, so, yeah, just the, the, those sort of injuries, obviously, uh, frustrating and having the Eels go down their number one hooker does not help, but... Yeah, th- this is a team. I look at that roster, and Matthew Komalafi was very good. I thought Dontori Louis had some really nice moments. He had one bomb get away from him, uh, unfortunately. But you look across the park, and you see lots of guys that contributed nicely, and then just just the silly mistakes. Yeah. Just the mis-execution. Yeah. And it's not like you're pointing the finger at one person saying, no, it was this play of it, dropped the ball three times. It's just across the park, across the back line, the forward pack, the, hum, the halves and the spine. Just little areas here and there. And uh, as, as long as long as they don't tidy that up, they're going to be having this run of inconsistency. But if they do tidy it up, I think they can go on a real legitimate run. Yeah, and I thought on the weekend it was a case of so many times where they could have simplified what they were trying yeah. to do yeah. but would take the complex option or maybe the one extra pass or a, a pushed pass that you could almost tell it's not going to find its mark. It's, it's, it's strange to put it down. It's... Times like that, I'm glad I'm not a coach because I think to myself, uh, you know, you want you want an element of chance taking, but it almost felt at at occasions where oh, should should you have thrown that yeah, pass right. or you case or you point. could feel that a mistake was coming. Yeah, case uh, in point, you had Jabril Kolach make a an outstanding run in the red zone where he nearly scores a try, pushes the offload and gets intercepted and results in a twelve point turnaround. 95 meter yep. length of the field try. And that, that's not me attacking Jabril, who's a very talented young player. It's just that it's one of those ones where sometimes you, you hold the pass. Or, yeah. or, or sometimes another game, that pass does find the support player. It was just one of those days there in particular that it cost us 12, a 12 point swing. And yeah, and that's hard. It's just hard to uh, overcome those sort of setbacks in a given game. Yeah. And, and look, to that point, we even saw, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit, we even saw. In origin last night, where New South Wales oh, were pushing goodness. passes late in the game, don't, don't get me started where, on New South Wales, mate. <laughs> where if they had held on to it and, and built a little bit of pressure, uh, so you've got players at the highest level who will have games where they do that, and it, but it, it's it's still something that is uh, symptomatic of the season that the uh, fleet team has had thus far. So as I said, I'd like to see. 
occasions where there's just a simplification of what they're trying to do out on the field. So, um, and yeah. If the uh, flag are struggling a little bit for their identity and finding that uh, simplification or consistency that you're talking about, 60s, on the other side of the coin, you have the New South Wales Cup squad who, when I previewed this in Team West Tuesday, I mentioned that this is as strong a team as the Cup is going to get all year. And uh, looking at the two rosters between the Eels and the Mounties, you don't want to get ahead of yourself, but this feels like a win that the Eels should not just go out and get, but get with a big four and against you know, boost in differential. And sure enough... Yeah. I think uh, it was, in the end, the 38-0 scoreline flattered flat yeah. Mounties. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there were five uh, missed conversions during the the match, so theoretically could have been 48-0, but it was, it was one of those games where the golf in class was... Um, Look, I won't say that there were times where it was possibly embarrassing for for Mounties, but because there are players there that we've spoken about it before, they're they're essentially like a Ron Massey. Yeah, they're, they're, oh. they're straddling the line between Ron Massey and New South Wales Cup. And yeah. when you come across a lineup where the Eels, as they were before round thirteen, the, the roster they were putting out there was a top four uh, sort of that they were pushing back into the top four, but they're they're almost like a strong top four contender, a legitimate title contender uh, when they're healthy, and they were healthy, and you throw in Oregon Kafusi, Makahesi Makatoa, Ofahiki Ogden comes back into the team uh, after his long layoff from that injury, got way back against St. George, and it's almost unfair, isn't it? Like That, that is uh, very close to the team that uh, took it to the reigning premiers in the NRL for 50, 60 minutes last year in the NRL+. plus. So it's a very good team, and they played like it. You mentioned the scoreline, thirty-eight nil. That featured a try to Sean Russell, a triple to Mike Sivo, Hayes Perham, and Zach Sini in the back line, also getting in the action in the forwards. It was Bryce Cartwright and Wiramu Greg, Jordan Rankin in the uh, the cold conditions didn't quite have his best set of kicking boots on, just going three from eight off the tee. Uh, so, like you said, it could have been forty-eight nil or beyond if the uh, if the Eels maybe scored another try or two, but probably a, a, a fair reflection of how big the talent disparity of the two between the two teams was and uh that that level of points differential actually pushes the eels ahead of the dogs on the new south wales cup ladder and bumps them up into third spot uh they're plus five on the dogs in terms of differential so that's the uh when i, when I previewed that game and said that this is a chance to fix up your for and against a bit uh obviously meant a fair bit because they're now up into third and they have a equal no sorry they have the second best differential in the game now or in the comp behind the panthers who are way ahead at 188 uh, but only just one win ahead of the Eels. So there's definitely some uh, chance to catch up to them in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I gave my 3-2-1 as um, a 3 to Kai Rodwell. I just thought he was outstanding. And that was off the eye test. And then you you, the numbers. it's really good when you can then dig into the stats uh, later and see that the eye test was validated by the stats. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, Kai Rodwell uh, delivered some some uh, great stats on that. Um, he uh, and and just um, uh, to that point, I had um, so he he got uh, two hundred and thirty six run meters in his uh, time out on the field. So I gave carries. him my mm-hmm. three. I gave Jake Arthur 
my two points. And just to that, it, I, the word that I wanted to come up with with describing Jake's effort was it was quite a physical performance. He had 150 run metres, and most of that was just on the edge or through the ruck itself. So he he was really taking on the line. And, in fact, there was... 17 of his runs were line engagements, which is a he, – he was really digging into that line. And if you saw the highlights of that game, which are available on NewSouthWilesRugbyWeek.com, which is NSWRL.com.au, and I think the Power Eels posted it too, uh, some of those right-to-left passes that he was laying on down to Sivo and Sini down that side were just spectacular. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he was credited with um, – five tackle breaks, a try assist, a line break assist, and he also had a, a solo try taken off him. Um, but the where he his pass wasn't necessarily the try assist or, or the line break assist, it set it up for the next pass mm-hmm. because you mentioned like the passes off to off to that left side with Sini and uh, and um, Sivo and um, that really comes back to that uh, left side being the, the go-to side because Sivo had 253 run metres and Sini 169, whereas on the other side of the field, uh, both... They, they weren't uh, bludging. They still 96 and 81 metres respectively between Perham and Russell. Yeah. It was just that yeah. uh, Jake is the dominant half of that team and he takes it down his side. I mean, when you've got Michael Sivo down that left edge, it makes sense. Uh, yes. you know, and he did he did it easy for his free tries, which is a good thing because it means that those 250 metres he made were rolling his sleeves up, getting through the middle, which is what yeah. you want to see from the big man and uh, put him in uh, front of the queue for a court back to first grade, uh, which is it's not surprising to see that eventuate. But looking across the rest of those numbers, mate, uh, it was a big game for off the bench. You had Wiramu Grego for 233 metres and score a try. Offagy Ogden in his return, uh, he was one of the real tone setters for the team in the first uh, five or six rounds. He came back with a bang, 15 runs, 174 metres. And then the rest of the back row was solid. Els Gehem, 100 metres. Bryce Carr, 125 metres. Makatora in the front row, 124 metres. Uh, so exactly what you want to see from a team that was, uh, by all accounts, should have dominated the game. And they went out and did that. Yeah, so... Uh, and I, I also had... Um, uh, uh, Points there as well for um, well, you did mention there the uh, the the effort of Ogden because I thought he was he was yeah super impressive in in such a short stint on the field, but um, I couldn't ignore Jordan Rankin for a point because just the organisation that he was doing from fullback he was he was really um, giving great guidance to the team. And he's a Jordan is a very interesting one because we've I think we've mentioned in the podcast before. There's a real big David Gower feel to him, isn't there? In in what he brings to the team and not just the team but the club. Uh, he is a man that is very experienced and organised when it comes to all facets of the rugby league and also life. And I think he's just been phenomenal in that regard, steering around a very young New South Wales Cup team and, and getting the best out of them as both players and young men. Yeah, and there was special mention that was made to Jordan at the uh, junior representation night as well for the mentoring that he uh, provides for the younger players, not just from a skills perspective, but also an uh, NRL experience perspective, given the age that he was when he first debuted in the NRL. So he was 
really he's really been able to share important lessons from his journey with the younger players within the club. So it'll be interesting to see where his path takes him uh, within the Eels. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, David Gower offered a very similar thing to the Parramatta Eels for a whole number of years as a, as a guy that also played NRL too, but just having that that old hand that, you know, the guy that's been there and done that and, and walked the long path in rugby league is, is so valuable, especially when they can articulate it so well the way that Gower and Rankin do. So, yeah, very, very happy to have him part of the, the, the setup of the Eels. And like you said, I'm very interested to see where Jordan Rankin goes uh, post-playing career because I think there's uh, some talent to tap into there. But, yeah, for the Eels, they finished around in third spot. They're really starting to hit their stride at the halfway point of the season. And, yeah, as the NRL team gets healthy, so too are they. And that's good. That is real good. So they're now in a position to make a serious tilt at their level as well as reinforce the NRL when required. And that's exactly what you want from your reserve grade team. And usually we'd lead off with this man and he's behind the mic segment because he is the A-lister for the tip sheet. Uh, but he's running second this week due to that little review we did of the New South Wales Cup and Jersey Flick section. But it is time to welcome Spiro to the show. How you doing, mate? We've got plenty to talk about this week. Going well, guys. A little bit disappointed with the result last night in the state of origin, mm-hmm. but I think, wow, what a great atmosphere. I was glad to be out there and good to have origin footy back uh, in the regular time slot in Sydney. So bittersweet, but uh, let's hope the Blues can get it done in, in game two and game three and win the series. Mate, I'm really looking forward to this segment with you this week because you've had the the week that so many people would be envious of. And there's so much you can share with us this week. So yeah, it's usually can't wait you, to listen to, to to what you've got to share with us. You see those competitions so where it's, you know, win the dream sporting week uh, by buying our product. And I feel like Spiro's gotten that without having to buy any products <laughs> into a competition. Uh, so before we get to that origin game where the Queensland uh, Maroons prevailed over the Blues 16 to 10, when we last mm. spoke to you, you'd gone into camp for day one of the media stuff and you had a, a fantastic sit down with a stack of players, including uh, Parramatta Real, Junior Barlow, and I think Jerome Luai and a, and a few others. But uh, that was mm. just the tip of the iceberg, wasn't it, for you? Yeah, it was. So it all kicked off, yeah, last Monday uh, at the New South Wales Blues camp. What a thrill that was. You, you see as a kid so much, and a lot of people see that first day of origin camp, all the media go in. They do these interviews, they speak to the players, they, you know, get close, up close and personal. And I've seen it for years growing up, always would tune in to the news on that Monday night to see the camp and to see the players' reactions. And then to be walking up and and going to level one and and being at the hotel that morning and mixing with the players, it was just a pinch me moment. And especially speaking to guys like Junior Baolo and and Jerome Luai, who were so good with their time and, and great to chat to, that was just such a highlight, uh, one of the best things I think I've experienced during my time in the media. It's been only about a year and a half, but that was, for me, definitely one of the, the main highlights, given that I, I love my footy, I love my blues, and also love um, you know Parramatta, being able to mix it with some of those guys. So that was fantastic. And then last Friday, we drove down, my father and my brother, we drove the three of us to Melbourne to watch George Cambosis Jr., fight in the world title fight for the uh, undisputed lightweight championship of the world. Um, He was boxing against Devin Haney, the American, and I actually got the chance to meet George earlier in the year. There was a a dinner held by the TAB that I was invited to, and I got to sit across from George and share a meal and pick his brains, get a signed glove, and such an impressive 
person and, and a great role model for a lot of people coming through the ranks in whatever sport it may be because he's got the, the ultimate adversity, uh, history of adversity, mm-hmm. going to school, getting bullied for being overweight and then transitioning into boxing and really honing his craft and basically reaching the, the pinnacle and the top of the sport by winning uh, the four belts last year in New York against Teofimo Lopez. And then he had the chance to defend those titles in Australia, in Melbourne. And tough result, he couldn't get the job done, but it was just an amazing experience for me being there for the build-up. I went to the weigh-in on the Saturday and really immersed myself in that experience. He didn't make the weight. He fell short. wasn't and it? He, yeah. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was unbelievable. And um, I think we'll speak about this a little bit later in the pod about how that may have affected his build-up. But being there and being a part of that, uh, there was a Hellenic, the, a group called the Elas Fan Club, which are basically this group of Greek guys who cheer and support all Greek athletes that come to Melbourne. And they were there just supporting George and giving it to Haney and giving it to his team. But being a part of that was great. And then the, the following day, the, the, big, the big boxing match, walking to Marvel Stadium. I've never been to Marvel Stadium. And sitting there and, and being a part of that culture and, and that whole uh, build-up to the fight, the walkout, the booing for the American National well, shout Anthem. Out, shout out to the crowd because I, I think Haney mentioned he'd never like, dealt with a crowd as hostile as that. Uh, and it yeah. Was a, it was a fir- like a first experience for him. So that was an incredible atmosphere. And, and while, like you said, we'll talk about it later, but while Cambrosius fell short, um, I don't think he disgraced himself by any means. And he's gonna he's far from done when it comes to his division, I think. I've got to ask as well, um, mm. to catch up with Bocco down there because I saw that uh, I'm sure on his social media that he was down uh, in Melbourne as well. We didn't get to cross paths, unfortunately, because Bocco flew down on the Saturday night. I We were there from the Friday, and then it was pretty much uh, the Sunday, but we were busy. We were out and about and then made our way to the fight. We weren't really sitting near each other, I don't think. And um, and I, we were out of there Monday morning. I think he stayed on for a couple of days extra. So it was a bit of a shame. Would have liked to see Bocco, but um, we, our paths, unfortunately, just didn't cross this time. We just you know, the, the timings and that didn't work. But he was down there as well. And there were heaps of big names. And we'll speak about this. I, I bumped into um, Brandon Smith, the cheese. And at first I was a little bit reluctant to take a photo. I thought, you know, he's, he's a bit enemy territory, Melbourne Storm, going to the Roosters. <laughs> but my brother's like, come on, we've got to get a photo with him. So I had a little exchange with uh, with the cheese as well, which was pretty cool and wished him all the best for uh, his, his contract next year at the Roosters and for the rest of the year at the Storm. And I've got to give him a bit of a rap because he does cop a bit of a raw deal. And and even myself, I, I've criticized him in the past and and haven't really been fond of things that he's done. But he was really generous with his time. We actually saw him at the Crown. So he went back to the Crown after the fight. And he was standing in the foyer and taking plenty of photos and generous with his time with the fans. So credit to Cheese, Brandon Smith, for doing that and and understanding that, you know, people people love him. He's a personality, a character, and giving giving up his time. And he could have very easily just hopped in the lift and gone back up to his room or gone back to a, you know, reservation at a restaurant or whatever. But he stuck around, took plenty of photos and was generous with his time. So, yeah, it was a, it was a really cool experience. And we'll get into the boxing in just a second. But just being there was just a buzz. And then drove back to Melbourne on the Monday and then State of Origin last night, which we'll speak about soon as well. I think you- well, let's let's uh, if, if I can just jump in there. Let's let's get into the boxing now. Mm. So we'll sort of take it as a from a linear perspective, uh, time wise. Um, yep. You touched on before about the the weigh in, and this mm. is, and I messaged you about this. Twenty five grams over, wasn't it? 
yeah, it was about um, that, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I messaged you about this and uh, also messaged Bocco for his take on it as well about whether not weighing in uh, at the time and having to take that extra effort to get under the weight, whether it might have impacted the uh, the way that the fight unfolded. And, and Bocco came back with... The, said to me basically the same thing that you said. So I'll leave. I'll, I'll I'll get you to share your takes now because the, your takes were seemed like they were pretty similar to Bocco's and and to a number of other people that were there. Yeah, I had a bit of intel to Cam, Cam Cambosis. I, I know a few people that uh, within his ranks. I went to school with his cousins and and know a few other people that are sort of in the inner sanctum of his team. And from what I heard, George weighed himself on the scales before coming out and doing the public weigh-in, and he was under and comfortably under. Now, when he came out and weighed in, there were a number of people from Team Haney on the stage, and there were, I think originally they agreed to only six people from each team, but in the end, Team Haney had about 12 or 15 of his team on the stage, and they were bouncing up and down, and as a result, the scales were wobbly and affected the result. There were also a lot of people standing close to the stage, which could have affected it. So George had to strip down to his bare, bare minimum uh, at one point to try and make the weight. He didn't make the weight. And let's, uh, let's reword it. He nude it up. He nude it up, right? He nude it up. <laughs> so he, he, he didn't make the weight, but before he was comfortably under. So it was a bit confusing. And the team, Cambosis, their argument was that because there were so many people on the stage, the weight was, you know, affected and they wobbled, the scales were wobbling, the stage was wobbling and... It wasn't really accurate. But the truth is, George went out the back. He said that he, he went to the toilet and, uh, and you know, did what he had to do. Then he had a hot shower. And I spoke to his team about that. He had a hot shower for about 10 minutes, sweated it out. And that was it. And then he was fine. And he was comfortably under. But my takes, as I said to you, um, 60s, on the, you know, on the day of the wane and the day after the wane, that George was preparing really well and he had been um, eating well, fueling up all week, hydrating well. It was a very minor interruption. And at the end of the day, I have no doubt that it wouldn't have had any effect on the fight. I don't think it affected things at all, to be perfectly honest with you, because Devin Haney outsmarted Cambosis. He outboxed him. He knew which parts of his game that he needed to shut down and attack, and he did that really well. And, uh, we just saw that Haney just stuck to his jab the whole time. Very Floyd Mayweather-like. Yeah. Um, fantastic strategy and, you know, real credit to him because uh, he he knew what parts of George's game is to, to work at, and he did that, and he won. And he probably deserved to win as well. And I think that the scores were, were very reasonable, very fair, and George admitted that. And George, you know, respected what Haney did in the end as well. So – I think that the Wayne didn't have much to much of an effect at all, uh, and George was really, really focused. And I think that at the end of the day, it was just he got outsmarted. That's what cost him. It's the, an infuriating the fight. style to have to go against because it's so effective. If you're good enough to be able to do it, uh, the, being able to do damage with the jabs like that, you know, it just starts off small, and then all of a sudden the gap just gets wider and wider and wider, and you're you're playing catch up, and you're having to go away from the structures and plans that you've put in place because. You know, they're just taking the fight away from you one punch at a time. And that's the thing. I think there were 85 jabs that Haney landed on Cambosis, which is a record for the number of punches that George – or the number of jabs that George has uh, conceded in a fight. So 
you know, it was very, very strategic and, and it was, to be honest, it was a bit of a lackluster fight. Like there weren't any knockdowns or there weren't any huge hits, but it was just a very, technical. it was like a game of chess, yeah, you know, that they technical. were just working at it. Yep. Yeah, I suppose the, the, the label we love to give those ones is one for the purists where the, yep. the theory of boxing is on display more than the sort of the glory or gladiatorial elements of it that, you know, we come to associate with big hits and knockouts and whatnot. But uh, mm. like like we mentioned earlier, Kambos is far from done in the division, though. He's only 28. That's uh, very young by boxing ter- uh, terms these days. So he'll, uh, I dare say he'll be pushing for a rematch at some point. And yeah, it'll be very interesting mm. to see if he can uh, make the adjustments and adaptations from that first fight against uh, his opponent to, to bring it back next time. Well, it's in the contract. So it will. there will be a rematch, no doubt about that. That there will be a rematch most likely before the end of this year. So October or November, they're looking at at the moment. I know George said November, so I'll probably mm-hmm. say November. And in terms of the destination or where it's going to be hosted, that is not necessarily in the contract. So it could be in either Sydney, Brisbane, or Melbourne again. There's talk that it might return to Marvel Stadium. I'd like to see it in Sydney, not just because I'm from Sydney. I'd like to see it at the new Sydney Football Stadium uh, in front of 50,000 People, I think they hold about 50. Sydney siders as well. George in his hometown. So keep your eyes, uh, keep your eyes peeled for this. I think it'll maybe come to Sydney, but there will be a rematch and it'll be one hell of a fight. And George is already back in the gym fighting and, and working towards that. So uh, stay tuned. And you mentioned having to get back to Sydney rapidly after the fight on that Monday, naturally because mm. State of Origin was on the Wednesday. But unfortunately, the disappointing results just kept flowing, didn't they? On the back of yeah. that tiny victory, the uh, dastardly uh, Queensland Maroons pulled off a rock-solid win against us, sixteen to ten, out at uh, a core stadium last night. And yeah, this one—I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the Parramatta boys just briefly. Uh, oh, sorry, in a moment, not briefly. But yeah, mm. this this was a frustrating loss. The Blues uh, sort of lost track of what what they've been so good at in the last few years. And uh, the, the the Queenslanders pounced on it. There was a number of uh, runs against play opportunities. Cameron Munster, Daly Cherry Evans, both having key either interceptions or scoop ups of a loose ball uh, in the second half. And yeah, just that that sixteen to ten scoring maybe even flatters the Blues because they were really they really lost their way throughout this game. Hundred percent. And as you touched on there, the disappointing results kept flowing. So I've been to now, that was my third State of Origin game that I've actually been to in person. And in all three matches, the Blues have lost. Oh, so I no. think I'm their bad luck charm. <laughs> um, <laughs> just putting that out there. So the last game I went to was in 2018 at Suncorp game three. We had the series locked up, but we lost. The other game I went to before that was 2009 at ANZ at the time. Uh, and I think it was game two and we lost as well. So I'm the bad luck charm. Mate, you yeah, want to be careful. You want to be careful because you'll end up in a situation where your photo will be at entrance gate, <laughs> right? Do not, do not allow do not bow in. It'll be at the football. It'll be at George Cambosa's fight. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Let's just hope that doesn't happen for Parramatta, all right? That's the main yeah. thing. Uh, you, you're, you're, doing just... all, you're doing all right in that front. You're doing all right in that <sighs> front, I think. So, yeah, isn't, isn't yeah. it funny how you get like your own little hoodoos like that where – uh, you know, you talk about statistical sample sizes, and obviously, it it is just a not non important outcome in the regards mm. of of maths. But it's just frustrating when you have a run of attendances like that that always result in a bad outcome. But yeah, the it was just a, one of those games where I I sat there, I watched it with my old man, my brother, and my cousin who came over, and we just mm. spent the full eighty minutes just so frustrated 
at, you know, the, the lack of direction, the silly mistakes, uh, mm. allowing the Queenslanders to dominate the ruck, which obviously that is a reflection of Queensland's energy and enthusiasm as well, as much as anything else. But yeah, the Blues just, we talked about the Jersey flag earlier, 60s, and I feel like the Blues were their own worst enemies in this game. Yeah, uh, I, and I'm just wondering too, because you talked about the boxing match being one for the purists. And I thought there were elements of last night's game that harkened back to traditional New South Wales-Queensland encounters. And when I talk about traditional, I'm talking about what Queensland does best (laughs) and what New South Wales does worst, which is Queensland is lifting, playing well as a team, playing well as, um, you know, getting their best individual performances as well as uh, combining well. And on the other side of the coin, uh, New South Wales being high, highly vaunted, um, lots of praise for who they are, in uh, how they line up on paper, and then getting out there and producing the type of football that um, is is the worst possible football in an origin arena, which is that they seem like strangers out there on the field, like playing like a group of individuals. And to be honest, that's what I, that was how I took the New South Wales performance. It just seemed like blokes that hardly knew each other. And yet you had that combination that's there from, uh, from, from Penrith. Um, mm. You had the little, the mini Parramatta combination that's there. Um, uh, and, and probably if I was to sum it up, I, I just thought that the, uh, Fullbacks aside, because I, I cannot criticise Tedesco in any way, but I thought that the Queensland spine outplayed the New South mm-hmm. Wales spine. They were far more effective and that they they the combinations started and ended around those those players as they do in most games of football. And Queensland were just far more effective. And yeah, Munster was the, the man of the match, but I, I just thought the things that New South Wales didn't do well happened in the spine. The things that Queensland did do well happened in the spine. Yeah, the, uh, yeah for sure, for sure. The, the player that surprised me for Queensland was Patrick Carrigan, who has mm. been good for the Broncos for a few years as a young guy, but he really stepped up in this game, had some really devastating runs back inside the ruck. But yeah, just like you said, 60s, it felt like a, that old-school distillation of origin where the Blues were the favourites, uh, had the even though Queensland picked an excellent team, the Blues had a great team on paper and you know had the swagger of being the reigning champions. And Queensland just fed off that. And I, I suppose that's a reflection of Billy Slater too, who I, I wanted to ask you about shortly. But in terms of the mm-hmm. Parramatta boys, Freddie pulled the old switcheroo before kickoff, put Junior to the bench for the impact role, brought Reg on to start. Uh, in terms of Junior, I don't know what Freddie's directives were, but it felt he was a little bit too uh, ball play heavy instead of just tucking the mm. ball and running and then letting the, the offloading and passing ball the line come as a result of that. Should have scored a great individual try if it wasn't for Cameron Murray, Cameron Murray getting lazy on the decoy. Uh, Reg, I thought, worked harder, and Maddo came into, came on in a time where it was uh, highly fluctuating. Like the game was fluctuating wildly for the Blues in terms of not completing their sets, so he had to get through more defensive work than anything else. How did you? What was your read on the three Parramatta boys and how they went about their business last night? So we'll get on to the Paraboys just one second. I just want to speak about a couple of quick things about New South Wales' performance. Mm-hmm. Like you guys said about the ruck, right? And Freddie said this in the press conference. We know that Queenslanders, they like to lie on the ruck a little bit more, right? Um, it's just a trait. Melbourne Storm and Queenslanders, that's what they like to do. And Freddie said it. He said, you know, we should have done the same because we know that in the Origin Arena, 
they're not going to blow penalties as frequently as they do in their club land or you know regular season games. So if they're lying on the ruck, we have to do the same. So he was a little bit disappointed that his team didn't bring that and and match Queensland on that level. And the ruck, the ruck speed was really good for the Blues in the first half. I think it was under three seconds play the ball, which was really fast and really good. But we needed to actually you know take something from Queensland's book, take a leaf out of their book and say, look, if they're going to lie on the ruck, we're going to do the same, right? Because they're not going to blow penalties. So we should have matched them on that level. And errors, like you said, there were just too many silly errors and too many mistakes. And that leads in nicely to Junior Junior Paolo. Um, I love Junior. I think, as you said, he deserves to score that try. He was really good. But he, he was just a little bit too ball playing. And we heard that in the commentary on the 2JB commentary that our guys were getting a little bit frustrated with that, that he was getting his hands on the ball and passing it a little bit too much. And that's like we know Junior can offload it and he's really good at that when he plays for Parramatta. But in the Origin Arena, it's very, very different. You just have to tuck the ball under your, under your arm and just run and, you know, make meters contribute and offload where you need to, but don't overplay your hand. And I think he did that a little bit, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But still, I still think he played a a really good game. It was different. I think for Junior, he starts really well. And as an impact off the bench player, I think Reg is better impact off the bench than probably Junior, if you're comparing the two. So the switch was a little bit unusual, but it is what it is. And Junior was only on for about 30 minutes, which wasn't really enough. I think he probably deserved a little bit more time on the field. On to Reg. He only had 87 metres and 15 tackles, so a little bit uncharacteristic for him, and it's a huge step up. It's his first origin performance, and usually we see him crack towards that 200-metre mark each week when he plays for Parramatta, but he probably didn't get his hands on the ball enough, and his meterage and tackle you know, tackle count weren't fantastic either. So you know, I think he was solid, but once again, wasn't as impressive as he has been for Parramatta. And Maddo was put in a really tough situation when he came on, as you said. It was, it was a, it's a very hard game to come onto off the bench in your debut when you're behind against a Queensland side that, you know, are really quick and, and really aggressive. But I think, you know, 36 minutes, he got a good little stint on there, but he, he failed to bring the impact that he has off the bench for Parramatta this year. And it was a little bit disappointing, but, you know, take nothing away from them. They're all uh, great players, and, and we'll speak about this as well. I think Freddie got his, his bench rotations probably a little bit off the mark as well, just a little bit on the way around his bench. And I think he'll need to change some stuff going into game two. But, you know, proud of the boys, proud that they were there. They represented our club really well, and they didn't really let the side down. There was no one in particular that let the Blues down. I just think as a team, the performance was a little bit under par. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair summation of it all. And uh, should they get the chance to back up in Perth, I dare say that each of the three Parramatta boys will put out uh, far more well-rounded performances. But this game had uh, some dramatic moments. It started off the first tackle. Isaiah Yo sort yeah. of, uh, bounced out of that tackle. And I, I thought that the bunker would have had the same mandate when it came to concussions for State of Origin. But from what I could tell from the coverage, it was at the hands of the trainers. Uh, he played through for... The, I think the, either the entirety or the majority of the game after that, and he ended up playing a pretty reasonable hand. Nearly scored the game-leveling try in the 80th minute. But, yeah, the, I wonder if there's going to be a bit of talk about that in the coming days and weeks because that was, a from the very first tackle of the game, such a, a headline moment for for it. He played 55 minutes in the end. So he did come off, but he didn't come off immediately. And there was heaps of controversy 
around that one. Our guys noticed it straight away in the call. I think it was pretty obvious as a fan and as a viewer that he was hit pretty hard. And then I was just watching him in the play. I just really just focused on Isaiah Yo for the plays, you know, but, uh, uh, after that. that. And you could really see, yeah, yeah. You, you could see that he was stumbling around a little bit. He wasn't running like he normally would be. He was a little bit, you know, light on his feet. So it was pretty clear to me that, he, he was not good, and he probably he should definitely should have been taken off the field. I love Isaiah Yo. He's one of my oh, he's, favorite he's players in the NRL, player, you know? Yeah. He is outstanding. Very, oh, I, I, you know, you don't, as a Parramatta fan, you sort of begrudgingly respect Penrith players, but even back in the days when he was a bloke that sort of was a center slash back rower and was finding his feet in the NRL, I always had time for his uh, way of playing football, which was, you know, high work rate, you know, make the, the, the big percentage plays work hard. And he obviously has now transitioned into being the pre-em, uh, the preeminent lock forward in the game. But yeah, that 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 incident just—you see what concussion does now. We we have a much better understanding of what what it can do to a person long term, as well as short term too. By the way, and yeah, th- those incidents leave a bad taste in your mouth. Where I know you want to win the game as the Blues, but geez, letting him stay out there just feels so wrong. Hundred percent. And it was the thing is right. So the bunker did see the incident and the independent doctor did see the incident and they classified it as a category three concussion or head, head knock. So that then meant that it was in the hands of the, the blues trainer, um, Travis Tumor, right? So he, he was the one that then had to make that decision and he did testing on field and was satisfied that Isaiah Yo was fine. Isaiah Yo said that he was okay and, and insisted and, he wasn't yeah, hit, but it the, was the, very the players, obvious. The players in this incident are going to, uh, whether it's lie or, or you know, sort of stretch uh, the the truth as much as possible, stay out in the field because they they want to win too. Our state of origin is on such a pedestal when it comes to Australian sport, not just rugby league. It is uh, in terms of representative honours, uh, there is you'd be hard pressed across the world to find a game that means more than state of origin because I know the NFL, if they're Pro Bowl, it is a shadow of what the state of origin is in terms of importance to players and fans, but. Yeah, just from what we, we know about concussions, it was, from my, my book, and obviously you too, Spirit, it was frustrating to see him mm. out there and uh, not being pulled off the assessment almost straight away. Well, the eye test is is something that is easy to follow here because if you compare it, as you've said before, to an NRL regular round game, you would see that player taken off 100 times out of 100. And, and perhaps that's important context, context, because the NRL itself has gone to great lengths in the lead-up to our state of origin to stress the fans that it is different now, that the, it is adjudicated differently when it comes to the match review committee and the judiciary, where uh, grade one and grade two uh, uh, charges that would attract a suspension now only attract fines. And so perhaps that is part of the issue there now too, where if you're going to treat it differently for that, they're going to treat it differently for or the players will try and push through the concussions. Yeah, but that given that that's a, a medical issue, you'd have to think that it would be one where they couldn't and wouldn't do that. And if if by chance it is that they are, um, I think it, it defies logic. It just defies logic. And so you, you just would not see – because we see far um, more minor yeah, incidents. Yeah, you, you get pulled instantly. And yes. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see if there is a follow-up to this uh, before we – for the New South Wales uh, camp as well as the game itself. Therefore, uh, well, the NRL this. is going to investigate it. That's the, the go, latest news this morning. So keep keep an eye out. I'm sure that they will have something to say about this uh, very shortly. Now, 
When it comes to the Melbourne Big Three, obviously Cameron Smith sort of led the way uh, as a, a genius at dummy half, and Cooper Cronk had the, the longevity in terms of going to the Roosters and winning another couple of titles there. But uh, the one you, you heard with Billy Slater was how smart he was as a student of the game and how quickly he just absorbed everything, how much work he did to be at the cutting edge of understanding you know, opposition structures and where the best exploit them. And it looks like that's transitioned very nicely into a coaching role uh, for a bloke that has no official coaching experience prior to State of Origin. Uh, he did a very good job, didn't he, on Wednesday night? He really did. And just before we get on to Billy Slater, just one last thing on the Blues. Jack Whiten, he deserves a rap because a cool. lot of us in the media and even yeah. myself said that he did not cool. deserve to be in the team starting uh, people said he should have been on the bench or probably shouldn't have even been in the side. His but last, he lifted last night. His last start at centre was horrible. He missed half the tackles. He missed half the tackles he made. Pardon me, that was the old home phone ringing there. <laughs> and uh, struggled badly, but talk about redemption, mate. He was sensational against uh, the Queensland, uh, Queensland team. He really was. And he's a big game player. We saw him in the... 2019 Grand Final, awarded the Clive Churchill Medal, mm-hmm. even though the Raiders lost. And I was just really impressed with his performance. Not just the try he scored, but his defensive efforts yeah. were just brilliant and the, the 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 energy that he brought to the side. So huge credit to Jack Whiten, someone that was criticised pre-game. You know, was, everyone was shocked with his selection, but I thought that he really did play well. And I, I you know give Freddie a lot of credit as well for picking him in the side, knowing that he's a big-name player. On to Billy Slater. I'm super, super impressed by Billy. I was in the press conference last night in the room, just really absorbing it and and soaking it up. And you could not hear a pin drop when Billy was speaking. There is so much respect for the guy. And I have had some minor interactions with him, always been really good because of uh, work-wise. He does co-host one of the programs on our uh, network once a week. And he's a pleasure to deal with, Respect, you know, really good guy, and I really like him. As a coach, though, he's really smart, and he's got a unique approach. I think he's, you know, a star of the future. I think he's the next Craig Bellamy, if you, if you ask me. But the way that he answered some of those questions in the presser last night gave some really good insight as to his methods as a coach and his philosophy. And one of the things that he said was, you know, the side last night, um, the Queensland side, played like Queensland have for – many years and how Queensland should play, right? And you guys touched on that as well. We saw a, a Queensland side play like they have in the past through that dynasty where they won those seven or eight series straight. They were just tough, gritty, determined. They wore their heart on their sleeve. They put everything out there. They put their bodies on the line. And Billy was really proud of that team. And he sees a lot of growth and a lot of sp- scope in that team and a lot of vision, uh, which was impressive. And one of the things which I liked that he said, and he sort of took a step back and said that in life, we tend to get lost in the moment and we tend to be focused on the future and what's next and what's next and what's next. But if he's really his focus was savouring the moment, absorbing that win and how important that win was for Queensland rather than focusing on the, the games to come or the, winning the series. And that is really impressive as a coach because you can see that he's not getting ahead of himself. He's focusing on one game at a time winning that first game, then focusing on game two later when the, when the time comes. But he's just so smart and he was focused as well. And he said this in the presser that when he was appointed in the role, one of the main things that he was focused on was surrounding his side with good people. And he did that, bringing Jonathan Thurston, Cameron Smith, Josh Hannay, all those guys, Nate Miles, 
who were Queensland through and through, and Greg Inglis as well, who had a role to play. And no doubt that they're back to their old ways because they're being mentored by people that instilled those values in uh, Queensland Rugby League. And, uh, you know, Billy is just an all, he's all class. He's a very polished uh, person and very, very impressive. And I think, as I said, he'll be the next Craig Bellamy. He'll be the next super coach. And watch this space because he's a real star of the future. Well, mate, one, a, a wise football man said to me and, and, and emphasised a few times since he first said it to me, but he said, you really have to enjoy a victory when it happens mm-hmm. because that's what your goal is when going into every match is to win the match. You don't know when your next win is going to happen, so you've got to win no matter how the win comes about. You absolutely enjoy the win, and you get that out of the way before you move on to the next week. So, uh, and I think that's when you've just said that about Slater, about you know taking in what's just happened uh, before you you're thinking about the next one. Then I, you know, I'm all for that as well. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent, and it's even that mentality with Parramatta, and I think fans sometimes, including myself, can get caught up in. You know, can we win a title? Can we win a premiership? Are we going to break the drought, et cetera, et cetera? But the truth is, we just need to enjoy each win and really immerse ourselves in that because it's about the moment and every win is a good result. So if we can adopt Billy Slater's philosophy to the way we follow Parramatta as well, I think it'll pay off and, and it's a, the right way to look at things. That is uh, sound advice from both of you there, boys. Speaking of the Eels. Round 14 is upon us. It comes with the rare Monday game, although the Eels are owners of two of the Monday games in the calendar, being obviously Easter Monday and now the Queen's birthday. Big news this week, Eels back at full strength with the return of Mike Acevo, coming off a hat-trick against the Mounties. We uh, spoke about that just before you jumped on the show, mate, uh, and how he had a very solid game, three tries, 250 metres, building nicely back towards that first-grade call-up. Acevo's been... A long time coming, hasn't he? Coming off that ACL, the, the club have done the right thing, building him back up nice and steadily through the Reggies. How are you looking forward to his return on Monday? Pumped, guys. It's been pretty much a year or a little bit under a year since we've last seen him play at the top level. And he's built, I think, you know, Brad Arthur's done well by putting him in reserve grade the last few weeks just to build him into a little bit of form, give him a bit of confidence coming back into the, the fold for, for the first grade team. He scored plenty of tries and make him plenty of metres, and I think his impact on the wing has probably been underestimated in the past, but having him back in the side is such a huge in, and I'm sure he'll have a massive impact. Bulldogs, you know, not the toughest opposition, but you just never know what they're going to serve up. I know last year, uh, I believe on the Queen's birthday match, they came close to winning. It came right down to the wire, or they may have won, in fact. Uh, Can't recall off the top of my head, but yeah, it'll be huge, and especially now as we head into that home stretch, and we build towards a final series. It's important to have team, your team back at full strength, and it'll be great to have Sevo back in the fold. Really excited to see him back in there, and, and expect big things from him towards the back end of the year. I think. Of course, I never, are. I never take any match uh, for granted, but especially Bulldogs matches. I think it was uh, twenty nineteen. Did they not win the very first? Yeah, I guess no, the very first loss at for no, Parramatta at Bankwest. Uh, then Bankwest Bank at him. Yep, they. Uh, in the origin period, we played a very ugly game against them and dropped the first game at Bankwest, I think it was. Uh, and I think they, they drew out probably the worst Nathan Brown yeah, in, in yeah, that game, got him really fired up. And, yep. um, yeah, just 
got under his skin all through the game. It was, uh, as you said, it was a, a particularly uh, ugly game. I, I was out there for that game on Friday night uh, against Mounties, and what I will say is that the uh, NRL boys were all there up on the uh, veranda at the uh, at the training complex, and there was plenty of vocal support <laughs> for Buller out there. The the cries were caught coming out from him uh, for him uh, with every run and. Um, plenty of encouragement for him. So I think maybe there was an anticipation that he was about to make his long way to return to the NRL this week and the, the boys were providing plenty of encouragement for him. I did say before that uh, he clocked up those metres, but he probably only had to run a total of 25 metres for his three tries. It was um, uh, it was pretty much a matter, a matter of catch and, and, and cross the red over the line. The uh, although there was one of the tries where Jake Arthur hit him with a beautiful pass right on the chest. He did have to uh, beat a couple of defenders in that run to the line, but it was more his carries from the backfield, which is something that we've wanted to see from him that we did see uh, on Friday night. So um, looking forward to that. And Eels expecting the free origin players to back up in Junior, Reg and Ryan Madison. And given the limited workload in particular for Junior and, and uh, Maddo, I'm not too surprised or would have any uh, issues with them backing up. And I think even Reg, who, who you know got through a bit of work, was far less than like he'd have in his normal NRL game, as you mentioned, Spiro. So no dramas there. Of course, the player that is desperately unlucky uh, in the midst of that backline reshuffle is Tom Opacic, who's been rock solid for the Eels, working in relief in the centres. Um, you know, just a, such a pro's pro when it comes to playing in the back line. He makes great defensive reads, does his offensive work really tidily. And yeah, just the, the fact that the Eels are back at full strength in the back line means he's the odd man out this week. It's unfortunate, but, um, you know, that's just how, how, no, that's, how that, they that roll in the NRL. Exactly. That's, I mean, goodness knows you need that kind of depth because as the Eels found out the first half of this year, it turns out that it is possible to have, you know, five or six or seven backs injured at the same time. So, yeah, Tom Tom will get his shots uh, in the coming weeks and months. But for the Eels, now they look to take care of the Bulldogs, who, like you said, 60s have a way of playing up to Canterbury as much as the uh, – playing up to the Eels as much as they play down to the Dogs. Um, but in spite of that, uh, even with that 2019 loss, the Eels have got the weight of our success, I suppose, against the two teams dominating towards their column. They've got a four-game win streak over the Dogs and have taken 10 of the last 12. So even if it's been ugly – they found a way to get the job done against Canterbury by and large. And it'll be good to see him go on and get a good win on Monday, uh, hopefully. Because like we mentioned with the Mounties game with the New South Wales Cup, having that full-strength roster is such a huge boost. The New South Wales Cup team took advantage of it. And now it's time for the NRL boys to cash in this week. Yeah, and and hopefully cash in against an opposition that's uh, had its own form of chaos lately. Yeah, well, that that is the perfect little layup for me there because, and if I got this right, because I saw it pop up on social media, I think it is the first time in the history of the game that two yep. coaches have been stood down or sacked or or departed on the same day. And uh, correct, yeah. So we we saw the West Tigers finally uh, bring an end to the unhappy partnership with Michael Maguire. It's been a, a Tough, tough tenure for him out at the West Tigers. They've struggled to make any traction in the ladder. And then likewise for the Warriors, when Nathan Brown informed them, he was uh, unable to uh, make provisions to travel to New Zealand or operate out of New Zealand in the coming uh, sort of length of his contract. And so we saw two clubs part with their coaches and now obviously two 
vacancies there, but it's a, it was a good day for former NL halfbacks because Stacey Jones and Brett Kamali both got handed the the custodial keys as uh, the temporary housekeepers for those two clubs. Yeah, but mm. I, I, I don't know what to make of this one, mate, because obviously <laughs> coaching is a highly volatile business and it's, it's you've mentioned it plenty of times, it's a success-driven business. If you don't get wins, your seat gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And we saw that come to the sort of uh, fruition for those two teams there. What what now to for both the coaches and the clubs? Yeah, it's. I think it, it you know it was a long time coming for Madge. We all knew that was going to happen. It was only a matter of time. I said last week on the pod, I think, and I've said to a few people in the last month that he'll see out the season and then they'll probably get rid of him. But yeah, they just they wanted to get him out of the door straight away. I'm not sure exactly the reasoning for the sudden nature of that decision. They didn't have a big loss last week. I know that they've struggled. They've only won three games so far. And there was this pass mark of about five wins by the halfway mark of the season that he needed to reach to be safe. So they were meeting deadlines. And I think Tim Sheens, he said it, he, you know, he wants to have enough time now for them to look for another coach. They've got that. Till the end of this year, Brett Kamali can help develop a few of the players. He's not expected to do anything huge results-wise, but he'll just help develop players, help steer the ship, and um, get them to the end of the year, and then it'll be up to the the board to appoint a new coach. So the reality is we are a results-driven business. I've looked at it for a long time now. I looked at it last year. I've looked at it a little bit this year as well. Madge's record as a coach at the Tigers has been very poor. He hasn't been able to get out of that 35 to 38% win record mark for quite a while, and that's a concern, you know, because they're, they're a club that have struggled for the last 10 years. They haven't made a final series since 2011, and unless there's some change, you know, they're not going to go anywhere. So I, I do support the decision. I do feel a bit sorry for Madge because I know he works really hard, as all NRL coaches do. But at the end of the day, results are results, and they had to get rid of it. And I suppose the um, argument that came with that was he's been there long enough to have either signed or developed his team and still couldn't get the results. And unfortunately, if that, if that happens, then you're going to be on, like I said, that hot seat, and it came to a close this week. Yeah, and I think they're, uh, it'd be interesting to see who they go with as their next coach. Maybe Shane Flanagan is the man to lead the club. I don't think Shane will go to the Dogs, just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think he might end up at the Tigers. I don't. He will not go to New Zealand. And, you know, I've spoken to him about it and he will never move across the ditch. He can rule that out. But Shane, I think, maybe could be a, a ty- potential, you know, new Tigers coach, bring a bit of discipline there. They're going to be a better team next year when they bring up Icarusau Isaiah Papali, if both of them still decide to go to the Tigers, they're going to be a better team. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. In terms of the Warriors, I think it's a bit of a cop out. Nathan Brown's, you know, yeah. um, you know, saying that I can't move across the ditch. When he signed that contract, he would have exactly. known exactly. that he would have had to move to New Zealand. So I don't right? know. I don't know if that's a face saving exercise for both parties. Insofar as we don't want you to sack you. So you come up with that excuse? I, I don't know. It's hard to tell. But if, if that is legitimate, then like you said, it is a cop-out because yeah. that, that is taking advantage of a, a really awful situation for the Warriors where they were marooned in Australia for a number of years due to COVID. Um, so, and, and if, if that is really an issue where you mentioned that uh, Flanagan, I mean, you can understand if you don't want to go because of your family, but if, if they've got the genuine frontline NRL coaches that don't want to go over to New Zealand because of the travel, that is a big handicap for them in terms of trying to recruit a key man to lead the franchise. And maybe they, maybe having Stacey Jones there, and Stacey Jones I think is a smoky for getting the gig long term, 
it might work because you've got someone, you know, your own countryman, someone that knows the culture of the club that's played there, that's been involved for so long. Stephen Kearney was sort of similar. That didn't work. But I think Stacey Jones might be the man to lead them forward. And he's been a part of the fold there for quite a while. So, yeah, in terms of that decision, a lot of coaches don't want to move across to New Zealand. That makes it harder for the Warriors. But another team that have struggled for quite a long time, they did make a grand final in 2011, I believe. Uh, if my memory serves me right, they haven't made a final series since 2018 for years. So they're desperate to have get someone there that's going to get them results and get them wins as well. And I think it's been a really tough two, two three years for them. You look at it. They came across the ditch in 2020. They moved mid-season. Stephen Kearney came with them. Then he he was gone, right? And then they got had Todd Payton as a caretaker coach. And they appointed Nathan Brown. It was moving to and fro. And there's been a lot of uncertainty. And you've oh, got to yeah. give them credit. But they've got to start winning games. And once they move across back to New Zealand in a couple of weeks' time, there's no excuses. They, they probably won't. They'll struggle to make the finals this year. But going into next year, they really need a lift. And if Stacey Jones is the man to... Um, to take them forward, that's great. But there's going to be some pressure on him to deliver some results to the club as well. I, uh... I, I, I wrote on this through the week about uh, the coaching instability that's out there in the in the NRL. And I, I raised the question about, uh, I don't know who the more pusillanimous is, the, the coaches that walk or the, the clubs that go leaking internal discussions or mail about their coaches almost as a prelude to pushing them out of the club. But, uh, you know, the question mark has been raised. It's like a chicken and the egg scenario because each of those coaches had their issues before being appointed to their clubs. Now, if you have a look at Trent Barrett, he had become a failure at Manly. They parted ways under unhappy terms. He was he had a shot about the facilities that were there for him um, uh, with uh, over at their their setup at the um, uh, the uh, New South Wales um, rec, Sport and Rec Camp over there over at Narrabeen. Uh, then you also had the scenario with um, Nathan Brown, where you know his time at Newcastle wasn't the best, and he. he he was also another to uh, have to finish up before his time there. And then you just spoke about uh, Michael Maguire and his success rate at the Tigers. Before he was appointed at the Tigers, take out his uh, premiership win that he had at South. His last two seasons, he didn't do better than nine wins in his last two seasons at South with their roster. And there was plenty of talk of dissatisfaction of the players within there. So the Tigers actually took a punt with him, and it hasn't worked out. The the Bulldogs took a punt on an unproven coach in Barrett. The uh, the Warriors took a punt on Nathan Brown. And yeah. in all those instances, you have to think, who's to blame here? Is it the coach? Well, the coach... You know the coach can be based; it can be um, assessed on their track record, and I don't believe any of them came in to those clubs with a stellar track record. That's and the problem, I, yeah. And I think that the results that they achieved at each of those clubs could very well have been predicted by any average bloke out on the street. Could have looked at their track record and gone, "Yeah, 
there's there's a pretty big risk in what they're taking on here. Now, was there anyone better qualified for those positions when they came up? Well, that's that's obvious for the something that their own boards have to look at. But I look at it and I go, well, you know, there's. I, I don't think there were great decisions that are made, and I think those clubs are anchored towards the bottom of the of the rugby league for a very good reason. I, and I don't see it changing because there is nothing about the way that um, those teams parted ways or or even appointed the coaches that says to me they've got the right people in charge. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh. But I don't see I don't see recovery happening anytime soon unless there is major change at higher levels within those clubs. Correct. I agree. Couldn't agree more. You know, these unproven coaches, and like you said about Madge, he probably won a premiership or he did win a premiership because of the team that he had on paper. He yeah. had a really skillful side, and that is why they won, not necessarily because of his coaching. He looked like a hero because he, um, you know, they won a premiership and, you know, they broke the drought and whatever, but it was the playing squad uh, that got, ultimately got them that result. So, it, you know, like you said, unproven coaches, the Warriors, same thing. You know, Nathan Brown, he got sacked at the, at, um, at the Knights and then straight into a role at the Warriors. So, it's, you know, this, their choice of, um, of coaches and, and, and people just probably off the mark, both, both those clubs. Well, look, I... I... And I mean, I look at it this way. You can have those coaches at those clubs. Maybe they don't have a roster that's going to win a comp, but I can guarantee you, if you brought in a Bellamy or a a Cleary or a Robinson into those clubs, they wouldn't be sitting where they are at the bottom of the table. Another thing is, too, they probably would have slightly different personnel um, around them and and in the roster because they would have weeded out the players that don't fit the bill, and 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 I'd even I'd even say as well that uh, BA would achieve far better uh, results than than what those coaches did because I'll tell you what BA walked into a dual wooden spoon roster at the Paramount Reels when he took over there mm. and uh, immediately lifted them up the table because he he insisted on. Uh, higher standards than what they were delivering in the past. And I, I, I think it comes down to you've got to have the right coach at the right club. And I think there's only a certain number of coaches that are capable of lifting teams and changing the culture. You've, we all have club, uh, coaches who, as, you, as you've suggested there, like Mike McGuire, if you've got the right roster that's there – they can they can get a, a result in a season. Um, I think it was proven um, up at the Cowboys with um, now who was who was their coach? I've got a mental blank on the. Uh, he, he only just recently parted ways when they um, Paul Green. Paul Green, of course. So Paul Green with Jonathan Thurston there, and I'm not suggesting that Paul Green can't coach. I'm su- I'm suggesting that they he had success at that club because he's a decent coach, but he had also had a very good roster. But there is only so many coaches who can grab players and turn them into something more than what they might have been under under other coaches. And uh, I rattled off some of those coaches just then, and I do put our own coach, Brad Arthur, into that category as well, because if you have a look at the roster that we've got right now, uh, a couple of years back, those players 
would not have been in as in demand out in the marketplace as they've as they are now. It's why we're losing players because we can't match the offers being made by rival clubs because those players have been turned into uh, very marketable commodities in the rugby league marketplace. So um, yeah, I think each of those clubs has to look at. Uh, what coach they bring in, and there therein lies a problem because I don't think there's too many of those coaches going around. So maybe it's going to be a case of they have to take a punt on someone again that maybe doesn't have any NRL first grade coaching experience. Um, and this is where you know Brad Arthur's had his critics as a Parramatta coach, and obviously after 2018 when we had that wooden spoon. Uh, the club could have, you know, easily gone a different direction. But this is why both you and I, Sixers, have always stressed that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. Finding a, a competent coach that can take you deep into the like deep up the ladder and into the finals consistently is hard in the NRL. I mean, look look at these clubs; they are just mired in the worst kind of mediocrity, where they're going through coaches and nothing changes. And you know, sometimes you know, just having a guy that you you have there in, in BA who I still think, and obviously you do too, that he can make that push to, to break the drought uh, at some point in the future. But, geez, the, the alternatives can be very distressing. Yeah and-, yeah. and just another thing on Paul Green quickly as well, and this is the problem that Paul Green, as you said, he was, you know, he was an okay coach, but it was off the back of his side that they won the premiership. He got sacked, you know, two years ago, and he's being talked about now as potentially taking over at somewhere like the Bulldogs, what good is that going to do for them? You know, it's it's just I don't understand sometimes why they what you know the way they think and the decisions they make and you know Shane Flanagan's different. He's genuinely a good coach, right? He won a premiership because off the back of he built a squad at the Sharks, he rebuilt that club, he instilled the discipline and the values. But other guys like Paul Green, how are these guys being touted as you know coaching taking over at the Bulldogs and trying to turn things around? Yeah, I, I I don't think you can look at a coach who has been in that situation where they've had a, a real genuine downturn in their results at a club over multiple seasons just before the end of their tenure, because there you know there's a reason why. Well, let, I'll I'll come back to Maguire again. His last two seasons at the Rabbitohs. If he had continued longer at the Rabbitohs, I think you would have seen West Tigers-type seasons that would have been um, uh, happening at the Rabbitohs after that because it was, a down- it was a downhill trajectory that they were on. And uh, really, it's, it's, he's continued that on at the West Tigers. And, I'm, and again... I don't want to. I, I'm not casting aspersions on him as a coach. I'm saying he is the type of coach that will perform well with a strong roster, and that probably applies to more coaches. Uh, there's more coaches that fit into that category than coaches who can get something extra out of out of the playing group that they've got. And let's face it, you put. You have to put uh, Craig Bellamy at the top of that list because no matter what happens, the Melbourne Storm are in the mix every single season. Love them, hate them, however you feel. 
when do they have a season that you that you call a rebuilding year? Like they are, never, yeah, they are just regular features in the in the the top of the table. And if you have a look at their team now, and then you go back a number of years, all those key players are now gone, but they've transitioned through where they've got different stars in there now, who again are going to be part of the the you know, a potential Queensland state of origin dynasty into the future. And he's he's been able to bring those through and never at any stage do you see Melbourne sitting in the bottom half of the ladder going through a rebuilding phase. Now, That's right. So my take on all of that is if you've got a coach who can keep you up in finals football all the time, you will jag premierships at different points. And um, I, that's like, I mean, that's what I'm seeing beginning at Parramatta, where we will just be regular finalists up there, and a title will come because of the fact that we will be in the mix all the time. And a, a, a club that's in the mix all the time, their time will come. Their time will come to to jag that. And uh, it's it's like the Roosters. I mean, they maybe they have a different approach to Melbourne, but they are very rarely allowed to have a bad year. They go about just reinforcing their roster uh, as soon as they can. And they've got a very good coach as well in, in Robinson. But Bellamy, he's he's top of the tree for that sort of thing. And I think, the, as I said, I think most coaches fit into the um, – they can be decent uh, and, and achieve good results with a good roster – and there's a very small select group of coaches who can make their players better players. And I think it comes down to the fact that they are actually coaches. Like they, mm. coach, they coach the player as much as the team. And I For did sure. have, and I, and I have had players that have said to me over the years about Brad Arthur that until they came to Parramatta under him, that they hadn't been properly coached before. And by that, they meant as a football player, that there are coaches who assume that players can do certain things because they're in NRL and they don't so much look to coach them as individuals but rather coach the team. And I think there are coaches out there, the elite coaches, will get the best out of the players because they look at the aspects of the players that they need to work on to make them better individual players and therefore make a better team. So anyway, so... Let's face it, that's the problem. <laughs> not, not, not for our beloved eels. So. That's it. That's it. 100%. We don't have to worry about that, but I agree with all your comments. It's, uh, um, it's a fickle game, isn't it? Ended up yeah. being quite a robust discussion about the state of coaching in the NRL and why certain clubs struggle like they do. Uh, but uh, it's one of those fascinating topics because you see it year on year, don't you, that there's a handful of clubs at the top and obviously you mentioned Melbourne and the Roosters and hopefully Parramatta can solidify their position in that sort of pantheon. But then these, on the flip side, you've got the other teams where uh, their inconsistency and, and being mired in that mediocrity is a reflection of their sort of corporate governance of the football operations and those coaches. So it's tough, man, and that's why you know the grass is not always green on the other side. If, you, if you've got a coach that is working for you, embrace it because the alternative is uh, not pretty. It is not pretty at all. So it's tough. I don't know why these bloody coaches want to <laughs> want to do what they do. It's easier just to, to sit on the sidelines, be in the media, 
be a coaching assistant, be a list manager like Shane is at the at the Dragons, and it's much easier, less stressful. So it is what it is. I, you know, you, you it'd be tough to be. A, it's a tough gig being an NRL coach. It is a tough gig, and like, like I maintain, they must be maniacs to do it. Like the it borders on masochism because of what you put yourself through for the workload, and then you know the the criticism that you come under as a coach in the media because, like we mentioned, it is a results driven business. It's not like the media are saying, you know. You're, you're bad because you're winning 60% of games. No, because you the, the teams are struggling because it's a tough gig. So, yeah, it'd be very interesting to see how it plays out. And at the very least, it gives, you know, uh, you know blokes like us and obviously the media in general a lot to talk about because the, the churn and turn over in uh, NRL coaching is crazy. So have to wait and see mm. how those – we've got three clubs now looking to fill out coaching gigs. You've got the Canterbury Bulldogs, obviously the West Tigers and the New Zealand Warriors more recently. Yeah, lots of gigs going. <laughs> lots of gigs, not many artists. Uh, but Spiro, <laughs> That's it. That's Spiro, it's been an absolute blast to chat to you, mate. We talked boxing, we talked footy, we talked coaching. Uh, behind the mic, it's bigger and better every week, and it's an absolute blast to have you on to break it all down with us. No, nah, I appreciate it, guys. Always good to talk. Go para this week. Touch wood. Let's hope that they get the win against the dogs, and we're talking about a para yeah, win exactly. this time next, next week. Next week, we'll be uh, breaking down, hopefully, a big Parramatta win. That's it. That's it. Good to chat, guys. Yeah. Thank you. See you, mate. And after that uh, long and spirited discussion with Spiro about all things rugby league and boxing, we move in to the news. News team, assemble! And we lead with the latest on the Ryan Madison situation, which isn't like new, new 60s, but I think it sort of broke between our last podcast uh, and our opportunity to talk about it, uh, and then obviously the most recent recording we're doing now. But the Eels coming in for a very, very firm offer. Apparently. I think this was according to Buzz Rothfield in the Daily Telegraph. Four years, $2.5 so an average of 625000 a season, was where Parramatta have moved the needle to in order to keep... Uh, star forward Ryan Madison away from the grips of the Dolphins or the flippers of the Dolphins, I suppose. I'm not sure how the, the Dolphins go about holding things like Ryan Madison. But yeah, um, I, I was surprised when I heard those figures, not because I don't think Madison is worth it, but uh, that is a serious show of commitment from the Parramatta Eels. Well, I think if Maddo was to move on, then first of all, you know that it's going to have been a really strong bid from the Dolphins yeah. to have yeah. uh, to have surpassed that sort of money. And I'm not saying that they wouldn't be capable of coming up with the money to uh, better the Parramatta offer. But if he, if he wasn't to stay, then there couldn't be really any um, allegation made a, a, against uh, the Parramatta management that they haven't come up with a strong bid to retain him, especially in the circumstances that we discussed last week where there's such a heavy investment in some core, certain core players within the club. And, and we just know that the the bounds of the salary cap are, are such that once you invest heavily in uh, a core group of players that you're really looking for value in the rest of the team, that's the that's certainly a Melbourne Storm model, um, and to have that sort of money being prepared to be invested in Ryan Madison 
is uh, and over an extended period too. That's the other factor in the contract that it's a four-year deal, and Parramatta aren't overly renowned for the longer term contracts in more recent years there's a a lot of short-term deals that are that are put out there on the table not so much the longer term ones so that is that you know if if buzz rothfield's details that he's had are are spot on then that is significant not just in the dollars but in the length of the contract yeah and i mean obviously on the back of junior and reg re-upping recently for long-term deals they're putting ryan madison in the same sort of caliber of player to build around for the entire team. They're saying that yeah. between those three men, we can bring our young up-and-comers or the guys like Kai Rodwan off he Ogden that we have identified as uh, better than where, what, what they're otherwise being elsewhere and can fl- flourish in our system. They're going to be the guys to play with Junior, Reg, and Madison. So like you said, if he does go to the Dolphins, you're gonna, we, we know that it's going to be because they put an offer he could not refuse on the table. Uh, I yes, think the yeah. Eels, I, I cannot be upset by what the Eels have come up with for this offer. I think it's reflective of how good he has been this year and how good he can be in the coming years. So, yeah, uh, this will be one of those ones where if you get told no, it's because it was going to be that way. I think yeah. the, the Eels have put their best hand on the table and I am happy for what they've done. So, yeah. obviously, we're going to have to see how that develops. But, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that we're confident. that That is a good offer. So, Hopefully he sticks around and can really turn the Eels into a full-on dynasty alongside Junior, Reg, Dill, Moses, Gufferson, obviously all those other key pieces that should be here in the years to come. But yeah, that, that's the latest on Ryan Madison. We'll have to wait and see where he goes from there. Not the only news this week, mate, because me and you had to dust off the old suits and nice shirts and get out to a very, very nice dinner on Tuesday night. The Parramatta Junior Representatives Awards Night was out at Oatland's house uh, just off James Roos Drive, a lovely little spot there actually, and we found ourselves in the high company of the who's who for the Parramatta Eels, be it players, executives, or support staff, and it was just a wonderful night as we celebrated the Harold Matthews, SG Ball, and Tasha Gale. And getting to share our table with the uh, man who was being honoured on the night, mm-hmm. Kevin Wise, for his, all these years of service for the club. Yes, um, great fellow. We, we actually... Uh, sit close to Kevin in the uh, up in the stands at at Combank Stadium, and uh, have got to know him over the years as well. So uh, it was good to be able to share the table with him, and also with Arnie Kay uh, on the night. And uh, yeah, good night was had. Uh, you mentioned the uh, salubrious company that we uh, <laughs> that uh, that was there on the night, and. Um, yeah, yeah, very, very good uh, evening that was had, and uh, and we also had uh, Jerry G, who is uh, history. He's he's been a, a, a team manager within the uh, uh, junior representative ranks, and he's just recently been asked to take on the uh, the same role for the Jersey Flag team, and he was honoured with for the second year in a row with the Dennis yeah. Anderson Medal. So that was. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a medal named in honour of uh, Big D for um, the outstanding service within the junior uh, representative ranks, and um, yeah, it was good to good to see him awarded uh, for the second year in a row. And Jerry had a, a fantastic little faux pas <laughs> in his acceptance speech, where I think he was trying to 
make a self-deprecating joke about how they must have got the printing wrong for him this year. <laughs> so a, ve- a very worthwhile recipient. And he stressed, um, and we talk about it with the power stories all the time, don't we, 60s? But he stressed that there are so many people that an honour like that could have gone to that make these junior pathways tick and run so well. So good to see Jerry not only get acknowledged, but also acknowledge the work of everyone else that is there behind the scenes. And yeah, just I'll quickly run through the winners in each grade here because a couple of players tended to scoop most of the gongs in each grade. Starting off the Harold Matthews, you had Matthew Arthur, youngest son of Brad and little brother of Jacob. He took out the Coaches Award and the Best Forward uh, Gong in the Harold Matthews. Michael Gabriel was the best back and then player's player and best and fairest. He was a player that we circled last year's 60s that stood out to us, but had a very solid backup campaign this year, and that's big Sam Tuovati. He is an absolute unit of a young man, and I think he's got a bright future. In the SG Ball, uh, they had the weakest campaign out of the three junior reps, the Matthews and the Tasha Gale, both making the finals, uh, but the ball... Uh, did miss out on the postseason. But for Coaches Award and Best and Ferris, we had young Saxon Pryke, who's going to turn out in Jersey flag very soon. I think he's named to be 18th man this week. He's a good prospect to watch. Charlie Geimer was the best back. Then we had a, a split winning of Best Forward and Players Player. Dominic Destratus won uh, a share of both of those awards. He uh, split Best Forward with Marcus Atoa and Players Player with Arthur Mill and Stephen uh, Dom Nostratus, fantastic young man, really good young player too, busy back rower, uh, does all the off-the-ball work fantastically well, as well as runs a good unders and courage line. Uh, Marcus Toa, big unit off the bench, and Arthur Miller Stephen came to us this year by way of Queensland, has spent plenty of time in the Jersey Flake 60s, can play fullback wing and I think centre too. Um, definitely one of those players to watch. Moving on to the Tasha Gale, uh, this one... No surprises, Coaches Award, Best and Fairest, Ruby Jean Kennard, Parramatta's um, maiden or inaugural NRLW graduate from the Tasha Gale. Best back, Rosemary Beckett. Best forward, Ashley Pottinger. Uh, players play split between Patessa Leo and Petalina Otoa. Uh, uh, I mean, the Tasha Gale, there's a number of players that could have easily been honoured there, but I think all of those recipients there were fantastic uh, and, and well worthy of each of those gongs, mate. Yeah, it was... Um, uh very good vibe in the room. Uh, players enjoying the fact that um, it was their night, and you'd, you'd have to say a lot of the noise created by the Tasha Gale Cup uh, players uh, really enjoying the night and <laughs> celebrating the success of each yeah, other. They, it was a fantastic celebration, in particular of the Tasha Gale, who made so much history for the Eels. Their first finals campaign, a whole stack of junior representatives uh, above the Eels representatives pathway. Um, quickly touch on that now. New South Wales City under-16s, uh, Eels had Zadis Mwagatutia, Jordan Uta as players. Uh, Neil Dunkley was the strength and conditioning trainer. In New South Wales City's under-18s, Charlie Geimer, and Ethan Sanders made the team. Ethan was the captain, I believe. Stephen O'Day, the SG ball coach, was the coach of New South Wales City. Greg May, the head trainer. Uh, likewise for the New South Wales City under-19s ladies team. Rosemary Reckett, Ruby Jean Kenner, Patessa Leo, Talisha Maeva all played as players. Uh, Ryan Walker was appointed assistant coach. In the Victorian girls under-19s, Petalino Toa and Amina Kanj will go to the uh, national championships. And for the Queensland under-19s, this team was named back in May, but I believe Arthur Miller-Steven is part of that program. Uh, worth mentioning that all six girls from the Tasha Gale team that earned high representative honours are going up to the Gold Coast to take part in the Women's National Championship in order to earn higher selection honours for, uh, I believe, what would be uh, an outright New South Wales team or maybe an Australian merit squad. Uh, likewise for the boys, uh, the guys that took part in that city under 
16s and 18s team will be pressing for New South Wales selection in the coming weeks and months as that whole uh, junior origin system plays out. So plenty of honours to be earned for young Eels, uh, men and women likewise. Uh, and aside from that, we had, I mentioned, Ruby Jean Kennard announced to the NRLW roster. They also announced their four development players for the 2022 NRLW development, uh, NRL squad, sorry. Uh, Petalina Otoa, Rosemary Becker, Patessa Leo, and Tawisha Maeva. Uh, all fantastic players throughout that 2022 Tasha Gale season 60s and all worthy of those development spots. Yeah, uh, it's uh, really a reward for effort and results. So um, that's, that's really what the Tasha Gale provided was both effort and results. And then the night rounded out with the announcement of the Junior Representatives Team of the Year, which is done by uh, a weekly ballot uh, based on players' performances. So they keep a tally of that, much like you would the Dally M's, I suppose. Um, and they come up with the 17 spots at the end of the year across the three teams for their best team. It was announced as such at the end of the night. At fullback was Muhammad Alamadeen from the Harold Matthews. On the wings, you had Luke Maroon of the Harold Matthews and Alicia Bell, who was a sensation not only as a goal kicker but as a, a flanker out there for the Tasha Gale. In the centres, one spot was tied between Michael Gabriel and Charlie Geimer. Uh, Patessa Leo winning the other spot outright from the Tasha Gale. Uh, Gabriel obviously by the Harold Matthews and Geimer the SG Ball. It was an all Tasha Gale halves pairing Talara Bamble at 5'8 for Rosemary Beckett at the number seven. In the front row, we had another split of points. Uh, the excellent Sam Tuovadi from the Harold Matthews and Petalino Toa of the Tasha Gale. They were locked up in one of the prop spots. Ruby Jean Kennard took the other spot outright. Matthew Arthur was the dummy half from the Harold Matthews team. In the back row, Tuisha Maeva, Tasha Gale, Saxon Pryke, SG Bohr, and Kobe Herford, Harold Matthews rounded out the starting pack. On the bench, Catalina Vave, Tasha Gale, Marcus Atoa, SG Bohr, and then a couple other Tasha Gale players in Casey Key and Leilani Tua rounded out. Uh, it was the 17 spots, but there were 19 players picked. So, fantastic night, mate. I, I mean, I cannot stress how much fun it was to be able to just celebrate the achievements of the young men and women, even if we didn't bring home any silverware, uh, particularly in that Tasha Gale. It was so fun to cover them and then be able to sit back and look at what they achieved in 2022. Yeah, and uh, uh, we'll be marking that date down on the calendar every year, hopefully scoring an invite every year, mate. <laughs> I don't know if it's always going to be table one, but uh, it was just good fun to be there. And, yeah, I, if you ever do find your way out there, it's – it is why uh, it's like the culmination of why you are following the pathways because these young men and women are just trying to forge their own stories on the way to an NRL NRLW debut, and it's yeah, just a really nice chapter at the end of each year for them. All right, that wraps up the news, mate. Let's get into the previews because the NRL is back, which means we've got all three grades in action for round fourteen. Kicks off on Saturday. We go out to Belmore Park. I don't know if you'll be out there, but it is just around the corner from me, so I've got no excuses to miss this one. Uh, out at Saturday, Belmore Park, Parramatta Eels looking to bounce back from that loss to the Thunderbolts. They're taking on the Canterbury Bulldogs at 12 p.m. Uh, Belmore Sports Ground. Let me just pull up this quickly because I believe the Dogs have got a pretty reasonable Jersey Fleet team if I look at the ladder. They are... No, they're not. Okay, I thought they were way up there. That's the New South Wales Cup team. They're only just ahead of the Eels on the ladder. So very much a winnable game in terms of ladder positioning for the Parramatta Eels. Uh, a couple of changes this week. I mentioned in our review of the game that uh, Cruz Natui Schmidt had picked up some sort of injury. He's obviously out. But looking at the back line, it starts with Dantore Louis at fullback. Arthur Miller, Stephen and Matthew Komalafi are on the flanks. Josh Tupolotu is back into the team. I'm not sure if he was injured or suspended, but he's back one way. He's in the centres where he'll partner Lachlan Blackburn. 
in the halves, Jabril Kalachi and Ethan Sanders are the six and seven. Front row, Jonte Jr., Befa Mesa, and David Holst are the bookends. David Tui moves from the dummy half off the bench to the starting team. Uh, Ryan Jones, Felix Nutelli-Schmidt, and Peter Tateo are the back rowers. On the bench, Nicholas Lenars, Nick Arafor, Brock Parker, and To Be Announced, which is uh, one of the great rugby league names, obviously going back to Queensland State of Origin, where they used that loophole to get... Was it Lottie Takiri or Wendell Saylor? They used uh, used the old TBA to get one of those players into the game uh, way, way back, but the Eels haven't announced their 17th player. Young Saxon Pryker, we gave a shout-out to in the uh, Junior Representative Awards. He is the 18th man getting very close to that Jersey Flake debut. But right now, the Eels with 16 players named the take on the dogs. Obviously, that'll be uh, fixed up prior to kickoff. I'm not sure who the 17th man is. Maybe Charlie Geimer off the bench, 60s, to give the, the Eels uh, sort of utility back option that can play back row or centres as the 17th player. Well, I, I sort of wonder whether it's that or whether there might be someone that drops back from the New South Wales Cup True. team, also, uh, one also of the younger good. players, so... Also very much a possibility. Um, but yeah, the, the mission statement's simple for the Parramatta Eels this week. Just hold on to the ball. Uh, play your structures straightforward. Don't get too cute. Don't get too far ahead of yourselves. Just back yourselves to hold on to the ball. And if you hold on to the ball, you will score. Yeah, it's... As I said before, I, I, I really wanted to see a simplification of what they're trying to do out there. Um, yeah, just as we talked about, just there just seems to be... Uh, one extra pass that seems to be pushed all, all the time. So, yeah. Interestingly, completions. while the Eels have failed to name their 17th man or final bench player, the Dogs are missing a starting winger and halfback from their team list. So I'm not sure what the uh, the whole like lodging process is with the team list with New South Wales Rugby League, but teams are <laughs> just not straight up not announcing players, it looks like. Uh, so that would be interesting to see who they put there. Uh, like I said, dogs just ahead of the Eels on the ladder, so very much a winnable game for the Eels. We know they've got the talent to take it to the best teams in this competition. Just got to take care of their own backyard. That takes us yep. to the Easter, not Easter Monday, but the Monday public holiday. It's the, I don't know what your stance on this is, 60s, but it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. So they're going wild over there in uh, the UK. Uh, but for us, for us Aussies, uh, as long as we're part of that constitutional monarchy, we used to get to celebrate the, the public holiday birthday and the Eels are now part of the uh, public holiday game that the, the NRLs try to push uh, with the Bulldogs becoming a fixture. Uh, oh, just a uh, quick, quick anecdote. I actually can remember from my childhood in primary school, so this is potentially the late 60s here, going down the school, the entire school being walked down to Windsor Road at North Mead <laughs> as the as the Queen was driven along that road. I'm sure it was the Queen. And um, and we basically took out a whole chunk of the day to wait for the car to drive past, got the little, you know, that little wave, and we were all like, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and that was... <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny, but the Eels actually have a stronger connection to the the Queen than most, given that she opened Parramatta Stadium. Yeah, that's so, true. Uh, that's true. But uh, coming back to that Monday public holiday, uh, the Eels obviously the, the the highlight of the Platinum Jubilee celebrations back in England. I'm sure uh, they'll be taking on the Canterbury Bulldogs in the New South Wales Cup as the curtain raiser at 1:40 p.m. at a beamed, I believe, uh, and it's just a bit of inside word being beamed directly into the palace. There you go. So uh, Her Highness Queen Elizabeth will be uh, watching very pointedly as the Parramatta Eels hopefully complete 
the back-to-back victories on Monday. Paramount I think she follows TCT on Instagram. Def- don't, don't hold me to that, but she's a she is an Eels supporter, and um, uh, yeah, she, so beam directly to the Buckingham <laughs> Palace this weekend. But the blue and gold looking to back up that big win over the Mounties in the New South Wales Cup, thirty-eight 0 last week. They do lose. Uh, they do lose uh, some serious strike power with Mike Acevo, Mac Hesse, Makatoa, and Oregon Kafusi all called back up to NRL honours, but. In saying that, they do get back some useful pieces as well. Luca Moretti's back from what I believe would have been an injury layoff. Samuel Oizu, likewise, we last saw him against, was it Manly 60s? The Blacktown Workers? Uh, it could well have been. Think, I'm just trying to think he, how he, it was. He copped it off the ball and got a bit nicked up. Uh, uh, no, it was. I think it was the um, their last game at uh, Combank. Because I think, that, oh yeah, that would have been yes. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. You're right. It would have been that that game. I was thinking about the um, the flag game because that was at uh, yeah, Ring Rose. That was at Ring Rose, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, uh, you would be you Samuel's, would be correct. Sam yeah. been very good this year, and up until that most recent uh, short injury layoff, had been uh, putting together a whole string of games. You're exactly what we want to see from him, and it was looking really good. He'll come off the bench this week as we go through the team list. Jordan Rankin captains the team from fullback. Solomon and Iduki's back on that left wing now that it's been uh, vacated by Mike Acevo. He'll partner Zach City down that side. Hayes Perham and Sean Russell are the right edge centre and winger respectively. Uh, unchanged Haas pairing of Jack A. Williams and Jake Arthur. Offahe Ogden comes into the starting team. He'll partner Wiramir Greg, likewise, who comes off the bench back into the starting role, but he'd been locked down for pretty much the entire season until we dropped back all that firepower last week. They'll be the bookends for Mitch Rain. Unchanged back row, which means it's Elios, Gehem, Bryce Cartwright, and Kai Rodwell. On the bench, Luca Moretti, Tavita Talmapenu, Samuel Luizu, and Brendan Hands, who will give us the utility value in the 17. Yeah, really good team, even after losing all that strike power. But they're taking on the fourth place team, who they've just beaten out in terms of for and against after that big win over Mounties. Uh, the Dogs have a electrifying fullback for the grade after Matt Dufty was dropped. He'll be in the fullback role for them. Young gun, Paul Alamotti's in the centres. Uh, Melbourne prospect that they picked up this year, Isaac Lumilumi. I think he's played wing for the Storm in the past. He's in the centres for him this week. Uh, former Parramatta's prospect, Bailey Biondiotto. He's the halfback. He's played a bit of dummy half for the Dogs in first grade. Uh, just looking at the rest of that team. Um, I know Jackson Toppin is a pretty reasonable young back rower, but I'm not seeing too many other names there. I mean, we've, we've talked about Makatel before, if there's any connection with our boy. I'm not sure about that. Uh, oh, and the other one worth mentioning, uh, former Eels prop, Samuel Hughes, on the bench there. So... Uh, but the Dogs doing very well this grade, uh, separated only by five points of four and against against the Eels. Eight wins, four losses, and a bye for both teams. So, yeah, this is a very good paper, uh, matchup on paper. Yeah, it's um, difficult to get a handle on how a, a game like that will actually play out because, as you said, it's a, a good matchup on paper. The Dogs started the season very strongly, and there was a lot of calls for certain players to be elevated as a result of the strong performances uh, in reserve grade in comparison to NRL. But as we know, there is a, a, a chasm in, in terms of the standards between the two grades. I'd like to think it's getting um, narrower where New South Wales Cup is being treated more like the old reserve grade was. Um, I think there's a, I mentioned there's a, a couple of clubs not doing too well and I, and, and I am concerned about the uh, Mounties being in this in this grade, just simply by virtue of the fact that they're not a feeder club. But this, it's interesting that we play the Mounties and then we play the Bulldogs because 
the Mounties are almost like the feeder club for the Bulldogs reserve grade, yes. I believe. Yeah, I believe like, that is essentially they, they're the reserve reserve grade team. Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it is, um, it is interesting to talk about that cup elevation in terms of the overall product. But looking at the, the ladder, uh, the best teams in this competition and, and consistently across some COVID affected seasons too, but Penrith, Parramatta, uh, the North Sydney Bears, who are the Sydney Roosters feeder team, and uh, the Cronulla team, who was tied to the Jets. And the Bulldogs yeah. are sort of like the anomaly there. They've been pretty good in this grade for the last couple of years, but that has not translated to. NRL success, whereas for the other teams, more recently, obviously the Sharks, uh, who are on the up and up, it looks like this year. But for Panthers, Parramatta, Roosters, no Melbourne Storm is great. Otherwise, they'd be up here too because they're in the Queensland Cup. Yeah, you're seeing the best teams putting in place structures that let them succeed in the reserve grade level in particular because Jersey Flag's a bit more of a coin toss given how volatile those games can be. But having success in this, in this pathway is good for your NRL team. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this is being played as the curtain raiser to the NRL match on Monday. And that's really what we like to see is the players that are in the feeling like they're part of, like a big part of the organization rather than having to play off on some suburban fields. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy being able to watch the the team at, at. sometimes in venues where you get to hear the collisions a bit more, you get to hear the talk out on the field, uh, seeing the players up a little bit closer. But, you know, if I if I take away that selfish hat of being able to watch them under those circumstances and say what is best for the players uh, being part of a of of the of the one organization you'd like to see them out there on the same day as the NRL and feel like they're part of it, it is we've talked about this in the past a number of times it is important for these young men to feel not just know that they're in the cup and close to NRL but to feel like first graders have been touching distance of them and being part of the sort of game the NRL game day stuff as a curtain raiser is a significant factor and you know, and you're putting we we really, and you mentioned this because this was something that we campaigned for with, um, and it wasn't meant as a slight against uh, the Winnie Magpies in any way, but we wanted Parramatta to have their own uh, play in their jerseys in New South Wales Cup because, I, I mean, I just look at the players, they're, they're training as part of the NRL squad, squad through the week. If they're not running out in the jersey for the club that they are signed to, like if they're running around. And, and I mean, I know the clubs are performing well, like, um, you know, Newtown have their own different tradition. But if I'm a Cronulla player playing and putting on a Newtown jersey, I don't know. Uh, like if I'm, a, if I'm a Roosters player and I'm putting on a Bears jersey to play on the weekend and then back and, and then with Parramatta, they were a Parramatta players putting on a Wente jersey yeah. on, the, on the weekend. And, and you've got to remember as well, that for an organisation, then maybe it's a bit different for Parramatta. But if you've come through as a local junior, the chances their chances may well be that you're playing against Wentworthville jerseys in your in your journey through the local junior leagues, and then you're you're getting up close. You're one step away from being an NRL player, and all of a sudden you're putting on a different jersey, one step away, or, or you're putting on a jersey of a of a team that and while, you know, while it used seems to be an arch enemy, maybe something trivial and minor. Uh, those sort of 
little psychological things absolutely can make a difference. And yeah, and I think it's just like we've mentioned before, it's about being aspirational to being the Parramatta Eel. And, that's it. That's and, it. You know, just having a clear pathway to first grade. You're an Eel in blue and gold as a Harold Matthews player or as a Tasha Gale player when you first born a jersey as part of the pathways. And then you progress through in the blonde gold until you make your debut as an NRL NRLW player. So that's yeah. that, that's what it's all about. And having the cup being the curtain raiser is a huge part of that. So very ha- always happy to see that. And hopefully it's something that can line up more and more often uh, in the future. But that does bring us to the main event, which is the NRL. Parramatta Eels coming out of that bye. Uh, and they get fully fit, which is just huge after what they've been through the first half of the season. Uh, before we get to the Eels team, let's look at the, the Dogs, who have made a few changes this week. Uh, Jake Avrilo, he's the fullback this week, mate. After bouncing around the back line, Matt Dufty, we already mentioned he's in the cup, got dropped. On one wing, you got Jacob Kiraz. On the other, Josh Adokar. In the centres, Aaron Shop and Corey Allen. Matt Burton and Kyle Flanagan are the 5'8 from halfback. In the front row, a uh, long time ago, former Parramatta Eels, uh, then, I think it would have been Toyota Cup uh, player, Ava Suomanafungai, who obviously went to the West Tigers and played plenty of first grade there. He's going to partner Paul Vaughan in the front row. Jeremy Marshall King is the dummy half. Captain the team from the edge is Josh Jackson. Raymond Faitala Mariner, the other edge forward. Max King Locke on the bench. Another former Parramatta's prospect from just about that same period, a little bit after. Zach Docker Clay. Then you've got Corey Waddell, Joe Simpson, Chris Patolo, extended roster, Matt Dufty, Bailey Biondi Odo, Curtis Morin, Isaac Lumi, Tavita Pangai Jr. No 23rd man named. Uh, interesting to see Tavita on the extended bench. I mean, I imagine if he's healthy, he has to come back into that team because he is, in terms of just raw potential, by far and away their best forward. But right now, he's on the outside looking in. For the Eels, uh, we go unchanged at fullback with Captain Quentin Gufferson. We mentioned it already, but Mike Acevo back in first grade almost a year, just a little bit under, since he did that ACL. Good to have him back. He'll be on the left wing where he'll partner Wanga Blake, who moves from the flank into the centres. Will Penasini and Bailey Simonson will be holding down the right edge. Of course, that means that poor Tom Opacic does get bumped out of the starting team and out of the team in general, actually, to 18th man after doing such a great job, but that is the nature of the business. Otherwise, the back line's unchanged with Dylan Brown and Mitchell Moses in the 6 and 7. Front row, we've got the junior, uh, sorry, the Origin boys backing up in junior and reg. They've got the uh, two prop jerseys on their back on either shoulder of Reed Money In the back row, Sean Lane, Amrata Kore On the edges, Isaiah Papali'i is a lock forward. Makahesi Makatoa, Ryan Madison, Oregon Kafusi, and Nathan Brown are the 14, 15, 16, and 17, respectively. Tom Opacic, Jake Arthur, Mitch Rain, Bryce Cartwright, Kai Rodwell, and Sean Russell, the extended roster. It's interesting that uh, Eels didn't name a lot of big beef on that extended roster. Kai Rodwell's there, and he's been in outstanding form. He could have easily stepped in if something happened to one of the Origin boys, but the Eels obviously confident not only of our Origin boys backing up, but of the existing players in that 17 being able to cover any issues that arose there between Makatoa, uh, Kafusi, and Brown. Yeah, and also uh, Tom Opacic hasn't been named in the yeah, New South Wales so Cup it looks side. Like he'll be an, uh, an outright 18th man. Yeah, so, but I, I wonder because they're playing at the same venue whether he becomes a late inclusion for the New South Wales Cup and then bumps a player out of the New South Wales. This is where I was thinking. There's all, all sorts of maybe yeah, that, jigsaw bump know. pieces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens there. As as we spoke about before, the the Eels have gone from uh, having uh, a real problem with not having available outside backs to suddenly having 
virtually everyone except uh, Hayes Dunster on board, and, and and we should mention he's he's uh, very confident that he'll be. Uh, he, he was moving nicely, wasn't he? I mean, uh, no noticeable limp was looking really good. So good, it was very nice to see Hayes out there moving about cleanly. Yeah, said he'll be uh, very confident of starting the the NRL preseasons. Quite happy with how his uh, rehab is going. So, um, yeah, had that opportunity to speak with him on uh, on Tuesday night about that. So uh, he's he's going well, and and he, he's almost the forgotten man, isn't he? Because we we've been talking about Bailey Simonson this year and how he's he's really starting to find his feet. Uh, as a Parramatta player, the return of Mike Acevo, then you've you've got the um, uh, the fact that Wonga Blake could almost be as a uh, serious contender as a as a specialist winger these days. You got Sean Russell uh, running around in uh, New South Wales Cup, and um, and uh, the player who probably had the strongest. Uh, preseason in in Hayes Dunstan was looking for uh, a big year this year. Uh, we won't see him again till next year. But anyway, just to this uh, game. Uh, first of all, I do. I will say again. I wish uh, 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 Zach Docker Clay all the best. He's uh, had a, a little bit of connection with with Zach via his school days. Um, I obviously don't want him to go too well. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, coming off the bench for the dogs, absolutely kill it in every other game of the season except for the ones you play against the Parramatta Eels, please, Zach. That's it. That's that's the way that it is. So sorry about that, Zach. But just looking at the Bulldogs team, look, it's it's one of those games where if both teams play to their potential, that Parramatta comes out as as comfortable winners. However, we know that rugby league doesn't always yeah, and uh, turn out that way, and especially playing, playing their Parramatta, games, yeah. Parramatta playing against uh, lower-ranked opponents. We don't always uh, turn out our, our best football. It would be good if we could turn out our, our best football and yeah. and get a comfortable win. Um, we don't see enough of those, you know, as... Uh, every so often as a supporter, you'd love for the opposition not to turn up playing their best <laughs> and um, and just have a, uh, a sit-back-and-relax uh, sort of game of football. Uh, but uh, teams seem to be able to find another gear when they're playing against us, not necessarily because of how Parramatta plays, but simply because they they are determined to lift. And when you've got an old arch rival like the Bulldogs, that's always going to be the case. So uh, yeah, the, it has it has to be a situation still where Parramatta looks at this game and says we are going to turn up. We are going to um, you know not you don't want them overthinking things. You just want them turning up, doing their job. If they turn up, they do their job. They will get the job done. If they if Canterbury lift above what they've been performing at this year, and they will need to lift to what from what they've been performing at this year. Yeah, well, the, the uh, life life after Trent Barrett was getting beaten roundly by the West Tigers, being competitive against the Dragons, admittedly, they were actually quite good that day, but then getting beaten pretty solidly by uh, a vastly undermanned Penrith Panthers outfit last week. So Yeah. So I'd, you'd like to think that Parramatta has the firepower to be able to win uh, comfortably, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that uh, the scoreline is going to be in the vicinity of a, a twenty point mm-hmm. margin to the Eels. I'll go for a scoreline of 
um, 30 to 10 to Parramatta. Uh, I will suggest that the game will be a fairly typical Parramatta affair in that uh, we'll get the domination in the forwards and then the points start to flow uh, late in the first half and then throughout the second half, uh, expecting that uh, you will have a return to the try scorer list of uh, Mike Acevo, so I'll select him for first try scorer. We do the play down the left, yep. Yeah, and uh, best on field, uh, I'll nominate Mitch Moses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it might not play out this way, but th- like I said with the New South Wales Cup last week, this does feel like put your foot on the opposition throat kind of game. And I know that we'll probably play down a bit to the dogs and they'll play up and play some of their best, most gritty football. But I want to see the Eels come out here and, and really blow the pants off from 44 to 2. Uh, you know, lock them out of a try, keep them to a penalty goal and then go on and win in big, convincing fashion as you come out of that bye and you look healthy and you start to really get those I's dotted and T's crossed, get the attention, the details done, and start for like settling into a big run in the back half of the season. First try scorer for me, if you're going to score that many points, there's a couple of different ways you could go. Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, the last time I backed him, he did me all right, so I'll go with Dylan Brown here. Um, he, he's just in sensational touch. Assuming that he's backed up fine from that uh, ankle injury he picked up against Canberra, which I think was mostly just precautionary, the, the stuff that he was doing. I think he'll have a big game. Best player. I could easily back it into Dill. I might just do that. I think I'll go Dill first try scorer, Dill best on field. And I liked your uh, when you used the terminology, attention to detail, because I don't want Parramatta to go out there where they think that the tries are just going to happen. I yeah. want them to put attention to detail in what they do, what they execute, because if they do that, then the points will look after themselves. I don't want to see the big lateral shifts without being earned. We we saw how that can play out against a team like the Tigers, where we were just looking to go so lateral so soon in the game and yeah, there were there were half chances that were created, but because that attention to detail wasn't there, those opportunities weren't finished off. And I, I think if we if we play too detail, as you said, you don't have to score every time that you're down there. That, but just that it, it's it's like the um, a dripping tap. If you just keep hitting. Your spots. So you go back to that, the Cambosis fight too. Like those jabs, they add up so quickly. Yep. Like yep. drip, drip, jab, jab. You know, it's not much each time, but all of a sudden, you know, the the floodgates have opened. Yeah, and if you, and if you're doing that sort of thing, the like possession and territory is going to come your way, and even if a team lifts against you, they're if they don't have the quality players on the field and, and, and the dogs don't let let's be very blunt about that, that if it's, it's one thing to lift, but it's another thing to keep turning up and doing that. If your opposition are applying the pressure all through the game. So uh, don't give them the opportunity to have any momentum. Don't give them the opportunity to feel like they're in there with a chance. Just, execute, do the things you need to do um, and that, that'll that be enough to, for the Eels to get the victory. 
Indeed, mate. And hopefully we can come back with that new format next week, the three different episodes, and have a, a nice little breakdown of where it all went right. Like we always say, though, you don't take anything for granted in the NRL. Uh, those games are hard to win, even if I've tipped a big win uh, on the basis of, you know, Parramatta has been aggressive and, and both uh, articulate with their details uh, and focusing on them. You know, it, it could just easily be a very tight win with the Bulldogs really stepping up and coming up against an old arc rival. But until then, thanks for stopping by and giving us uh, another listen. Look forward to uh, something big dropping tomorrow in our mid-season review. Sixties and myself are going to put our heads together and uh, come up with some talking points and grades across the Jersey Flag, New South Wales Cup, and of course the NRL. Look at uh, what's gone right, what's gone wrong. Big gangs, big players, and everything that encompasses uh, Parramatta's really solid start, 8-4 and four coming out of the bye, uh, for both the NRL and the New South Wales Cup, by the way. So uh, make sure to read that and drop in your comments and uh, where you think the Eels have gotten it right and wrong across the first half of the season. But until then, stay safe, and uh, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Go you, Eels. <laughs>